Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight uh, to be with you this week, and your hospitality has been wonderful, so I, I appreciate that, and getting to know some of you has been a joy as well. Today I'm going to talk about warnings and admonitions in Hebrews. So the warning passages in Hebrews have been debated in both popular and scholarly circles for centuries. It is actually difficult to determine where the warnings begin and end. For our purposes, a resolution of this issue isn't crucial. For where one delimits the passages doesn't make much difference in terms of how one understands the warnings. For the purposes of the study here, the warnings will be restricted to 2, 1 through 4, 3, 12 through 4, 13, 6, 4 through 8, 10, 26 through 31, 12, 25 through 29. Scholars propose a number of different views of the warnings. Here I will restrict myself to four interpretations. So you have the Arminian view. The warnings are addressed to Christians. What is the sin warned against? Apostasy. What are the consequences of the sin warned against? Loss of salvation. And secondly, you have the free grace view. To whom are the warnings addressed? Christians. What is the sin warned against? Lack of fruitfulness. What are the consequences of the sin warned against? Loss of rewards. Then the next view I call the tests of genuineness view. To whom are the warnings addressed? Those who are almost Christians or are a mixed audience. What is the sin warned against? Apostasy. What are the consequences of the sin warned against? Maybe the paradigm doesn't work perfectly here, but they never were saved in the first place. Then the view I will defend I'm sure we'll have some good question and answer about this. I call the means of salvation view. The warnings are addressed to Christians. The, uh, the sin that's warned against is apostasy. The consequences, if the sin is committed, is loss of salvation. So here we go. I'm going to unpack those by looking at the passage today and a number of things. The Arminian view is the most common one among commentators today and has the virtue of being a straightforward reading. The author warns the readers who are believers that they will be damned if they fall away. It seems beside the point to give a warning if believers can't fall away. And hence it follows, according to the Arminian reading, that true believers may renounce and abandon the salvation they once had. The warnings are given to the readers to encourage them not to do so. The free grace view agrees that the warnings are addressed to Christians, but argues from other texts that loss of salvation is impossible. When the warnings are examined carefully, according to this reading, they are not about salvation at all. The issue is actually about fruitfulness in one's everyday life. The sin warned against is compared to the sin of Israel in the wilderness. Israel's sin was not rejection of salvation itself, Instead, they received earthly punishments for their transgressions. And the same kind of earthly punishments are now described relative to the church. The third view argues that those receiving the warnings are a mixed audience composed of both Christians and non-Christians. Those who fail to heed the warning were never Christians at all. Often the warnings are explained as a test of genuineness. 
That is, the warnings are intended to provoke the readers to self-examination to see if they are truly believers. True believers, it is argued, can't lose their salvation, and so the warnings function as a test to determine whether one is truly saved. <clears throat> On the other hand, those who fall away were never believers in the first place. Those described in 6, 4 through 6 are, according to this interpretation, almost Christians. The writer doesn't describe his readers as those who are actually saved. They are very close to salvation, but are not actually part of the people of God. It is important to understand that in the mixed audience view, those described in 6, 4 through 6 are not a mixed audience. There, in 6, 4 through 6, they're non-Christians in those descriptions. We'll come back to that. The view that will be defended here is that the warnings are addressed to Christians. They aren't merely about rewards, but eschatological salvation is at stake. In other words, those who fall away will experience the judgment destined for the wicked. In all these respects, my view is similar to the Arminian view. I will also argue, in contrast to the Arminian view, that the warnings are always effective in the lives of the elect, and thus the warnings are the means by which believers are preserved in their faith. So in examining this text, four questions will be answered. To whom are the warnings addressed? One. Second, what is, what is the issue at stake in the warnings? Third, what are the consequences of falling away? Fourth, how should the warnings be assessed as a whole? We begin by asking, who is addressed in the warnings? It should be noted that of the four views sketched in above, that all agree that Christians are warned, except for the tests of genuineness view, which maintains that a mixed audience is in view, and that those who are described in 6, 4 through 6 are not Christians. It is quite clear that the warnings are addressed to believers. That's me speaking now. The readers are identified as brothers, which means that they are fellow Christians, 3.12. Often the second person plural is used in the warnings, which is most naturally understood as being directed to the readers. I have a number of texts. I won't bother to read them. It should be pointed out here that the author naturally addresses the audience as you and as Christians. But such identifications don't necessarily mean that every reader was a believer, the author could be generalizing, and hence the second person plural doesn't prove that believers are necessarily addressed. On the other hand, the pronouns indicate that Christians are certainly included in the warnings, for second person pronouns aren't des designed to address non-Christians. Perhaps even more striking is the use of the first person plurals in the warning. The author includes himself among those who need the warning, using we and us. Yeah, I, I, maybe there's seven or eight passages there that I could cite. Again, this doesn't preclude the mixed audience reading, for including Christians in the warning doesn't necessarily exclude unbelievers. But once again, we naturally conclude that Christians are described in the first-person pronouns. The decisive issue is the identity of those described in 6, 4 through 6. And the, commentary, and, uh, uh, and the commentary on those verses is, uh, you know, very uh, disputed and debated. So in the short time we have, here we go. I would argue that those described in those verses are most naturally identified as Christians. The notion that they are almost Christians can't be sustained. When the author says that they were once enlightened, hapax photisthentos, 6.4, this most naturally refers to their conversion. 
as the use of the same term in 1032 address, uh, uh, attests. So we have the same, same uh, phrase there about those who are enlightened. What is most decisive is the statement that the readers have shared in the Holy Spirit, 6-4. That's the ESV. The word shared, metakus, and its cognates don't point to a false sharing. Jesus truly shared, all these, all these words now are cognates of metakos, Jesus truly shared in flesh and blood, 2.14. Believers share a heavenly calling, 3.1. And our partakers are, or sharers in Christ, 3.14. The author refers to partaking of milk, 5.13. That's the same uh, root again from metakos. They're sharers, partakers in milk. And, and there's no sense that one only sips at the milk. All children share in discipline, 12.8. It is quite clear that the author doesn't refer to almost Christians, for the mark that one is a Christian is reception of the Holy Spirit. Paul appeals to the fact that the Galatians have received the Spirit to show that they don't need to be circumcised to be saved in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Peter makes the same argument at the Apostolic Council in Acts 15 declaring that circumcision must not be necessary for salvation since God gave the Spirit apart from circumcision. What it means to be a Christian, according to Romans 8 9, is to be a person of the Spirit. For those who don't have the Spirit aren't believers. It is quite irrelevant then to argue that the readers aren't Christians since Hebrews doesn't say in 6, 4 through 6 that they aren't forgiven of their sins or, that, or, 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 or nor does he say that they're sanctified or they're justified. And, and here, here I'm especially referring to the arguments of my good friends, Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms, who've argued this at some length. You know, they say, well, it doesn't say sanctified or justified, and therefore they're not Christians. But I don't think that's convincing. We can't impose criteria upon the author that are foreign to his purpose. And he actually uses the clearest evidence possible to demonstrate that the readers are Christians. They share in the Holy Spirit. As we have seen, the word sharing here doesn't suggest a partial or insubstantial sharing. The author also says that the readers have tasted three things. The heavenly gift, 6-4, which is probably salvation. God's good word, 6-5, which I think is the gospel and the powers of the coming age in 6.5. There's nothing here to suggest deficiency. They are all quite normal and standard ways of describing what it means to be a Christian. Indeed, the powers of the coming age signify that the Old Testament promises have become a reality in Jesus Christ. Some object to what I'm arguing for here by saying that the word taste means that the experiences depicted here are partial and inadequate. But there's no evidence in Hebrews that the word taste should be understood this way. After all, the author uses the same verb to say that Jesus tasted death, chapter 2, verse 8. And this certainly doesn't mean that Jesus just sipped death. <clears throat> he experienced death in all its fullness. All this is to say that the warnings are most naturally interpreted to be directed to Christians. The author is not intending in 6, 4 through 6 to speak to those who are almost Christians, nor does he suggest that he addresses a mixed audience. He describes those addressed as Christians. He is not asking readers to be introspective. 
and to, and to consider whether they have been truly saved, as the almost Christian view teaches. Such a perspective on Hebrews 6 makes this text quite different from all the other warning passages, which is quite unlikely. Scott McKnight has rightly argued that the warning passages should be read synoptically. In other words, they mutually interpret one another. Hebrews is a sermon, chapter 13, verse 22, with one main point, don't fall away. That's the main point of the sermon. I think that's the main point of the whole book, don't fall away. And the theology undergirds that main point. It is quite unlikely that chapter 6 has a different function from all the other warning passages in this sermon. Hence, the author doesn't write to provoke the readers to question whether they are truly believers. He writes to encourage them to keep following Jesus. The participles strung together, 6, 4 through 6, do not, in light of the rest of the letter, indicate that some have already fallen away, which a lot of commentators say, but I don't think that's right. Nor is the author writing about other Christians who are unrelated to the readers. When the author speaks of falling away, he warns the readers, just as he did in the other warning passages. The immediately following verses indicate that the author isn't saying that the readers have fallen away. He is admonishing them not to fall away. And we see from 6, 9 through 12 that he is quite confident that they won't fall away. The author apparently believes that the warnings will be effective, that they will succeed in preserving the readers in the faith. One more word should be said about the mixed audience view. I am not denying that there was probably a mixed audience in the church. So we've got to be really careful here. It is quite unlikely that every single person addressed was genuinely a Christian. And thus we must be precise and careful here. The question that must be asked centers on the descriptions found in 6, 4 through 6. How are the readers described? I have argued that he specifically targets Christians and describes Christians in these verses. He doesn't direct his warnings against almost Christians. So that's where I differ from a long lineage of commentators I greatly respect, John Owen, Calvin, Roger Nicole, in our day, Wayne Grudem and others, Peter O'Brien, <clears throat> so forth and so on. Now, this is not to deny that some who appeared to be believers probably fell away from the faith in the churches or, or the church addressed. That was a common experience in the early church. The point I'm making here is that the warnings are actually addressed to believers, not to those who aren't quite believers. We must attend to the literary function of the warnings, and they are specifically addressed to believers. And as I will argue later, the warnings were intended to be a means to preserve the believers from apostasy. I conclude then that the almost Christian view or the mixed audience view should be rejected since it doesn't satisfactorily interpret the descriptions of the readers in 6, 4 through 6. That brings us to the second issue. What is at stake in the warnings? Perhaps it should be noted again that the warnings are just that. They are admonitions and warnings. They are not declarations about what has happened. They warn the readers about the consequences if they fall away. I would argue with most interpreters that what is at stake in the warnings is apostasy, renunciation of salvation. In 2.1, the readers are warned about drifting away and neglecting salvation. It is even clearer in 3.12 through 4.11 that the issue is apostasy. The readers are admonished not to fall away. Apostani, we get our word apostasy from this word, right? 
aphistemi, apostenai. They're, not, they're, they're admonished not to fall away from the living God. They should beware of hardness of heart, uh, of rebellion. I won't give you all these verses, but I'm in chapter 3 here. Of, of disobedience, chapter 3 and 4, of unbelief, of falling short. In 6.6, 6, the sin is described as falling away, parapesantos. Falling away constitutes, we're told, a re-crucifixion of Jesus and treats him with contempt. Crucifying Jesus, again, describes those who have totally repudiated him. And it doesn't refer to those who are merely losing out on their rewards. Putting Jesus to death again is the action of his enemies, not his friends. It is imperative to recall that the warning should be read synoptically. And thus the author uses a variety of terms to describe the same reality. Thus the notion that apostasy is in view in all the texts is strengthened by the descriptions of the sin in 1026 through 31. First, the sin is deliberate. If, if we sin deliberately, willfully, he says. In other words, it is akin to defiant sin in the Old Testament, Numbers 1530, Deuteronomy 17.2. Sin for which there's no forgiveness. It is difficult to believe that the writer just has unfruitfulness in view. For the sins are described as trampling Jesus as God's son under one's feet, considering the covenant blood of Jesus to be as unclean as a menstrual cloth and insulting the Holy Spirit. The severity of the descriptions makes it quite impossible to think that the sin here is anything other than apostasy. The author rounds out his warnings in 1225 by exhorting the readers not to reject the one who has warned them from heaven. What are the consequences of the falling away or apostasy? I will argue that the consequences are final judgment, exclusion from God's gracious presence. In 2, 1 and 12, 25, the author warns them that they will not escape if they turn away from the one who admonishes them. The word escape functions as a framework or envelope in the warning passages, since it occurs in the first and last warning. The word escape is rather general, and one can see why some might think the text refers only to losing one's reward. Still, there are decisive points against such a reading. First, the consequences described in the warning passages should be read synoptically. You've heard me say that before. And the other texts make it clear that something more than losing rewards is intended. Second, the free grace view actually turns upside down what the author is doing. In both 2, 2, and 3, and 12, 25, and 26, the author draws a parallel between judgments that occurred in Israel with the judgment that will be meted out to those who turn against the Son. The free grace interpretation, noting the parallel, argues that the threatened judgment is earthly to the readers, just as it was under the Old Covenant. But such an interpretation actually misses what the author does, for he argues typologically, and escalates the argument. He doesn't merely draw a parallel between Israel and the church of Jesus Christ. He contends that believers will face a greater judgment for neglecting a greater salvation. In other words, the judgment isn't just earthly, but also heavenly, 1225. We see another example here of what I talked about the first night, of the escalation, which is a common feature of New Testament typology. It is also clear in 3.12 through 4.11 that the consequences of apostasy are not merely loss of rewards but final judgment. 
The author again argues from the earthly to the heavenly. Israel failed to enter earthly rest in Canaan because of its disobedience and its hardness of heart. But the rest envisioned for the readers is not merely an earthly rest, but a heavenly one. It is God's Sabbath rest, 4.9. The rest intended for human beings since the creation of the world. The point of the text is that the rest under Joshua was not ultimate, but provisional, so that it pointed to and anticipated a greater rest, rest to come. The free grace view then fails to understand the typology and theology of Hebrews. The earthly rest points to the heavenly rest, indeed to the heavenly city promised for believers. If they fail to enter God's rest, they will not be in his presence, but will experience torment instead. The consequences of falling away in 6, 4 through 8 come to the forefront in the illustration of land that receives rain but fails to bear fruit. Ultimately, such land is worthless, a docomos. It will be burned and is about to be cursed, 6, 8. Free grace advocates think the text supports their reading, for they claim that those who don't produce fruit but thorns and thistles are not damned. So you can hear lack of fruitfulness there, right? They don't produce fruit but thorns and thistles. <clears throat> the penalty, according to the free grace reading, is that they won't enjoy a life which is fruitful on earth. I would suggest, however, that the free grace interpretation fails, for they, for they don't see the point of the illustration. In the illustration, the land, gay in Greek, stands for the person. It should be observed that verse 8 doesn't say that crops are destroyed and burned. Instead, if the land is unfruitful, then the land will be burned. It is near a curse and is worthless. The judgment is inflicted on the land, that is the person, not on the fruit, the person's work. Of course, the fruit is included. I mean, everything's destroyed, right? Indeed, the word worthless, adakamas, is regularly used in the New Testament to designate those who are unqualified at the final judgment for those who are unbelievers, a number of texts on that. To say they are near a curse, so that sounds like that could be temporal. Well, they're, they're not going to be cursed, they're near a curse, but that doesn't mean they will escape the curse. The, the, the nearness is, is, is temporal, not spatial, I would argue. In other words, it's coming. The judgments described in 1026 through 31 also demonstrate that the readers would not merely lose rewards if they apostatized. If they turned away from Christ, there would be no sacrifice for their sins, 1026. And if there's no sacrifice, then there's no atonement and forgiveness. And the only prospect is final judgment. The ensuing verses confirm this reading. Those who turn against Christ are his enemies and will face a, quote, terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire, 1027. The argument again compares to the punishments to those given under Moses, but he argues that the punishment meted out to those who reject Christ is a worse punishment, 1029. Those who violated the Mosaic covenant received judgment on earth, but those who refuse Christ will be banned from fellowship with God forever. They won't have any access to God's presence. They will face God's vengeance and final judgment, 1030, and will realize how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the living God, 1031. I conclude then that the free grace view isn't persuasive. For when we examine the warning text together, the sin warned against is apostasy and the judgment threatened is final damnation. Perhaps it would seem from the above 
that the view defended here is the same as the loss of salvation view. I would argue, which I have great respect for that view, but I would argue, however, that the warnings are always effective in the lives of those elected and chosen by God. It is imperative to recall that the admonitions and warnings are prospective, not retrospective. The author doesn't declare that the readers have fallen away. He warns them not to fall away. I would argue that for all those who have been enlightened and who have received the Holy Spirit, that is, all believers, the warnings are one of the means by which believers are kept until the end. All those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit heed the warnings and thus obtain final salvation. To say that believers are saved by heeding the warnings is not works righteousness. For those who heed the warnings keep trusting God. Chapter 11. It's faith. Those who respond rightly to the author's admonitions continue to believe in God instead of turning away from him. Such a view of the warnings will not be persuasive to those who are convinced that believers can lose or forsake their salvation. This is not the place to defend the notion that those who have received the Holy Spirit and are saved will never apostatize. In my view, however, there is abundant evidence to support such a conclusion in the New Testament. John 6, 37 through 44, 10, 28 and 29, Romans 8, 28 through 39, and I list some other texts. A common objection is that the warnings are superfluous and beside the point if believers can't apostatize. It's the main objection to my view. Probably many of you are thinking of that. Some of you will continue to think that even after I'm done. I say this from experience. So, but you know, well, I got, I'll just keep going. Uh, such an objection, though it initially sounds plausible, reads the biblical text as an abstraction and does not take into account that God is a God of both means and ends. Nor is it correct, biblically speaking, to say that the means are pointless if the end will be secured. For instance, God has elected who will be saved before the foundation of the world from all eternity. Romans 9, 11 through 13, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, 4. Such a truth does not rule out the use of means, for those who are elected must still repent and believe in order to be saved. As we all know very well, the apostles, when they preached the gospel, did not preach, those who are elect, please come forward. <clears throat> they called on them to repent and believe. Furthermore, the gospel must be proclaimed so that people can put their faith in Christ, Romans 10, 14 through 17. The fact that the end, election, will certainly be obtained doesn't preclude the use of means, preaching the gospel and believing. Indeed, the means must be present for the end to be obtained. The same pattern, I would argue, of means and ends applies to perseverance. God promises that all those who are justified and chosen by him will never be forsaken, that they will never totally and finally fall away from God. Such a promise doesn't preclude the use of means, and it is argued here that the warnings are one of the primary means God uses to preserve his own from falling away. The end is not cast in doubt by the means which should be employed, but is actually supported and undergirded by the means. There are many examples in Scripture where means are used when the end is certain. For instance, Daniel prays fervently that God would fulfill the promise from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25 and 29, that Israel would return to Babylon after 70 years. 
The Lord promised that Israel would return from exile. And hence, one might think that Daniel's prayer for fulfillment was superfluous. But Daniel believed his prayer was one of the means by which the promise would be secured. Similarly, in Acts 27, during the midst of a raging storm at sea, Paul received the promise that every single person on the ship, all 276 of them, would live. Shortly thereafter, however, he warned the centurion and the soldiers that they would not survive if they allowed the sailors to escape on the smaller boat. What was the purpose of Paul's warning since God had already promised that the lives of all on the ship would be saved? Clearly, Paul believed that the warning was one of the means by which the promise would come to pass. Finally, Jesus teaches that it is impossible for the elect to believe in false messiahs and false prophets, Mark 13, 20 and 22. God will protect them from such deception. And yet he warns his disciples in the very same text, in the strongest terms possible, over and over again to be on constant guard and to be alert and to watch. Why should believers stay alert if they can't be deceived? The warning is one of the means by which the promises of God are secured. Another objection should be answered briefly. Is the view proposed here saying that no one falls away from the faith, that every person addressed in Hebrews was truly a believer, and hence that no one addressed falls away? Such a scenario is quite implausible, for we know it was common for people to fall away from the faith, 2 Peter 2, 1 John 2, 19. I'm not denying now, this is where precision is needed. I'm not denying there was a mixed audience in Hebrews, nor am I suggesting that every single person persevered to the end and was saved. Such a state of affairs is highly doubtful. The point being made here is more specific. It is evident from 6, 4 through 6 that the writer addresses Christians, that he warns believers about what will happen if they fall away. His purpose in the warning isn't to pause and to say, some of those I am addressing are not truly believers. Believe, believers are addressed in the admonitions. I am asking, therefore, how the warnings functioned in the lives of those specifically addressed by the author, Christians, and am contending that the warnings were a means used to preserve them in the faith until the end. Another way to put it is this. The author doesn't attend to a question that holds our attention. He doesn't consider whether some of those addressed aren't truly believers, for to do so would be to distract him from his main purpose and would blunt the force of the warning. The warnings given to the readers fits with their status as sojourners and exiles. In that sense, the readers are like the Israelites who were in the wilderness before finding rest in the land of Canaan, chapter 3 and 4. The readers are on a journey to enter their heavenly rest, but they face perils on the way, just as Israel did on their way to the land of promise. The readers are warned not to harden their hearts and rebel against God. Israel gave way to unbelief and disobedience, and the readers must not follow their example. Unbelief and disobedience threaten because the wilderness period is exasperating, exhausting, and trying. Believers long to be in the heavenly city and to enjoy their heavenly rest, but instead they encounter the pressures and opposition of life and the world. Their experience as foreigners and temporary residents, 1113, is also comparable to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
These men also received promises that were not realized during their lifetimes, but they persevered, knowing that a homeland, a city awaited them. But life in the wilderness, life as exiles is frustrating and can be dispiriting. Chapter 11 was written so that the readers would keep trusting in God and putting their hope in him until the promises were realized. The readers should understand that life as exiles is not unique to them. The saints who preceded them also lived without seeing the final fulfillment of the promise. As exiles, they must put their trust in God's promises for a happy future, believing that he will bring to pass what he has pledged. A specific window into life in the wilderness is provided in 1032 through 34. The readers experienced all kinds of sufferings, verbal abuse and discrimination, the plundering of their possessions, and economic deprivation. Perhaps they wanted to come under the umbrella of Judaism, since it was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Then they would be free from the constant attacks that plagued them. The author encourages them to endure in faith, Life as exiles, life in the wilderness is like growing up as children in a family. God is using their time in the wilderness to educate them and train them, chapter 12. The author uses here metaphors from education and physical training. They are in God's school and are being trained like athletes. God's purpose and design is for their holiness so that they will be mature Christians. As parents discipline their children so they will live productive and fruitful lives, so God is using the time in exile to form the character of his children. God knows they are in the wilderness, and Jesus himself has experienced the sorrow and anguish of human life, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, really. <clears throat> the warnings and encouragements in the letter are intended to bring them to their heavenly rest, to the city to come. The days of exile and wandering will soon be over, and thus the readers must follow the example of Jesus and the saints who preceded them, trusting and obeying God until the end. Furthermore, they have access to God's very presence through the atoning work of Jesus. They can enter God's presence with confidence and joy, knowing that he will grant strength and grace for every trial, 414 through 16. They shouldn't shrink back from God in fear, but come with boldness since Jesus is their great high priest who has cleansed all their sins. Hebrews is characterized by admonitions and warnings. But the theme of assurance is present too. The author doesn't exclusively warn readers about the dangers of falling away, but he also emphasizes the assurance they have as followers of Jesus Christ. One of the fundamental themes of the letter is that the sins of the readers are truly forgiven. Jesus expiated and propitiated for their sins at the cross, 2.17. They are freed from the fear of death because they are now brothers and sisters with Jesus. 2, 14, and 15. Their sins have been cleansed forever. And the evidence that their sins are forgiven is that Jesus, in fulfillment of Psalm 110, has sat down at God's right hand. The readers were tempted to rely on the Levitical priesthood for the cleansing of their conscience and the forgiveness of sins. But the priesthood of Jesus offers a better hope because believers actually draw near to God through Jesus. Jesus entered the most holy place with his own blood, and cleanses the conscience of its evil. As a result, believers can approach God's throne boldly through Christ as the high priest. They can be full of confidence and even boldness so that they enter into the very presence of God by virtue of Christ's blood and hence draw near to God with full assurance of faith, 1022. 
they know that since Jesus' priesthood never ceases, that he will save them completely, 725. His one offering has perfected forever those who are sanctified, 1014. So from one angle, Hebrews can be read as a call to assurance. The warnings and admonitions are also given so that the readers will, will be convinced that they are on the right path, that they are truly clean before God by vir- virtue of what Christ has done. The warnings aren't meant to cast doubt about the reader's assurance. That's very important for my view. The, 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 my, my daughter, you know, was a runner, and, you know, she was encouraged in the race by her, by her coach. Or I use the illustration of a child running out into the street. When it, when it, if you say to a little child, don't run out in the street, you're not, you're not saying to them, are you alive? Right? You're saying, don't go in the street. Don't get killed. There's a big difference between those two. So the warnings are not meant to cast doubt about the reader's assurance, but to strengthen and confirm it. The, do- the author doesn't want to, them to doubt whether they are Christians, but to encourage them to keep living as Christians. The author seems to be convinced that the warnings will have a salutary effect. He is persuaded that the urgent warnings will provoke the reader to better things, 6-9, to final salvation. The readers, after all, are recipients of God's promises. God promises to bless them as he did Abraham, 6.13 through 20. The promise is not uncertain, for God swore on an oath to bless Abraham. There was no question then whether Abraham would receive the blessing. God took an oath to underscore his unchangeable purpose, which he guarantees to those who belong to him, 6.17. The promise is given as an encouragement so that believers would seize the hope set before us, 6.18. Hope functions as an anchor for their lives, which can't be dislodged, for Jesus has entered through the curtain into the very presence of God. Barnabas Linder says about hope, it is like a place of refuge for those in need. It is like an anchor in rough seas. It is like admission beyond the veil of the sanctuary, which is the place of presence of God himself. The new covenant promise also provides assurance, for the new covenant is God's work, by which he inscribes his law in the hearts of his people. The new covenant is like the oath God gives to his people. It is unilateral and flows from God's mercy alone. The new covenant, unlike the old covenant, can't be revoked, nor will it be canceled by human disobedience. For God promises that his people will obey his commands. The promise of obedience is what sets the new covenant apart from the old. It follows then that the new covenant grants assurance for the law is written indelibly by God himself in their hearts and believers enjoy forgiveness of sins through Christ's sacrifice. God will certainly complete what he has started in them for that is the promise of the new covenant. They will not fall away as Israel did. Thank you very much.